0: Mac Power Users, Episode 718, Workflows with Dan Provost. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. And I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks.
1: Hey, Stephen. How are
0: you? I'm doing well, David. How about you?
1: Uh, I'm recording the Mac power users highlight of my week, man. And we got a great guest today. Welcome to the show. Dan provost. Hello. Dan is the proprietor. I guess. What is your title over there at studio?
2: Neat Dan. I just say co-founder. Okay. Uh, this was a thing I picked up. I think from, it was like a Jason freed thing. I think where it's like co-founder is a fact, Whereas CEO or whatever is a a title or something you can be assigned. So I like the
0: just straight logic of the fact.
2: This is a fact. I helped co-found this company. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's what Mike and I do. Same thing. We don't need fancier titles than that, you know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Broom pusher, you know. There's all types of great terms. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. But
1: Dan is the co-founder at Studio Neat, and uh, Studio Neat makes a ton of great kind of apple adjacent products steve and i have talked about many of them on the show over the years and and uh we are frequent customers i just took delivery by the way of two of your iphone stands because oh that's what we need now right with the <laughs> new thing you need it to stand up and give me that you know my clock and everything <laughs> So right, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm a continuing customer. Well, I mean, you know, also you make stuff out of Walnut. Of course I'm going to be buying <laughs> Um, And then, uh, but uh, Dan and I were talking before the show. We first met, I think at Mackerel back in the day when yep. the glyph was your first
2: product. Right. Yeah. Back and, in uh, 2011-ish probably.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the, and, I met the two of you on the same Mackerel trip a hundred years ago. Nice, and nice. yes, yeah, <laughs> y'all, y'all had a little table selling the glyph, talking to people and. It feels like a lifetime ago.
2: I believe I also met Sinbad on that same trip. Oh and, uh, yeah. He, he and I were speaking. hanging out and yeah. And I was going to say meeting you both was much more memorable than meeting Sinbad. So you have that <laughs> going. <at least. laughs> uh, the, uh, it,
1: you know, I, I miss tiny town. I mean, Macworld world was great and it was a zoo and a circus all at once, but but there was a part of it that had companies like Studio Neat when they were getting started. I mean, that's where I met One uh, Password when it was not even a table in Tiny Town. It was a quarter of a table, mm-hmm. and and like so many of these great products started there. And they would show up and they'd get some press, and suddenly they'd get some legs. And uh, and that's one thing I do miss currently. I feel like we don't really have that anymore. We don't have a showcase for for little startups trying out cool stuff like you guys did.
2: Yeah, it's it's a little bit sad. It went it always felt a little bit weird to go there for us because that's just not our natural like standing in front of people selling things. That's not yeah. our our uh natural mode to be in, but yeah, it was really fun to be there and to meet cool people. So, it is yeah, it's a little bit sad that kind of mac world is is no longer and nothing else has really swept in to replace that kind Mm -hmm. of thing that's true
0: yeah
1: well in my rambling terrible introduction dan is also a a host of the thoroughly considered uh podcast which is another uh relay fm podcast relay.fm slash tc where he talks about some of the stuff they do over at studio neat and the process and Uh, I really, I really dig it, Dan. Oh, thank you.
0: So Dan, let's get a little bit into, uh, into your, your background. Um, and, and let's maybe start with your, uh, your education. And a lot of people don't make physical products for a living. And I've told you hundreds of times over the years, Mm -hmm. how it's so impressive because I just make MP3s. Uh, y'all are making (laughs) things that people sit on their nightstands and on, you know, within their pockets, like all these things. Um, Mm -hmm. How did you get into that? Like, was it always your plan to be a product person? How did you end up being the Dan Provost we know today?
2: Uh, Yeah, not at all. So uh, let's see. I started. um, So I went to uh, undergrad college at Texas A&M University. I grew up in Texas, and that's a really good state school. And the program I entered at the time was called Environmental Design, and it's in the School of Architecture. So I was doing architecture <laughs> projects, you know, building models and doing all these things. But the A&M is, has a, a very uh, well-known grad program that's basically a Pixar and DreamWorks feeder school. It's like 3D animation, one of the best schools in the nation if you want to get into 3D animation. And that was my original plan in entering schools. I want to work at Pixar someday. And A&M had this strange structuring where this program I was in, in the School of Architecture, actually is what was meant to feed into that graduate program. And so that's where I started out with this kind of strange multidisciplinary design background where I'm doing all these things that aren't really hitting at exactly what I want to be doing, but are giving me this broad design understanding and this design Mm. education. So I think it's great, actually, that I started my design education with this very human-centered focus. You know, when you're doing architecture, you're always kind of grounded in the... Behavior of humans and the, you know, the user experience, how a person, how a human being is going to navigate through this space and, and all of these things. And so I'm very thankful for that background versus if I try to, to approach this Pixar dream from another direction where maybe I went to film school or something, or or went to SCAD and, and did like a straight animation program or something. So anyways, uh, you know, doing this and, uh, I kind of shifted halfway through where I realized the whole Pixar 3D animation thing probably wasn't the right path for me. And I started instead to stay with the time-based media, but moved kind of more into video where it was maybe, oh, maybe I want to be a filmmaker or maybe I want to do motion graphics or, or things like that. So I kind of started moving in that direction. That and then I, uh, after A and moved to New York to go to uh, Parsons, the New School for Design, and there I did a grad program called Design and Technology, and that was also a really cool kind of multidisciplinary program where you could kind of decide to do your thesis on any number of things, and there are all kinds of interesting projects in this Design and Technology. Space because I still hadn't quite figured out what I wanted to do, and you may have noticed, dear listener, that there's no industrial design like happening <laughs> in this phase. Like it's all kind of dancing around that, but that wasn't something I had I had pinpointed as something I might be interested in.
0: Hmm.
2: And then I should so I should mention uh, Tom Tom Gerhard, who is the other co-founder of Studio Need and my friend. I we went to the same high school in Texas, but we really kind of became friends in college. So he went to A&M as well, also in that architecture program. And then we kind of moved to New York together. He was going to NYU in the Tisch program, and I was at Parsons, as I mentioned. So we kind of continued, you know, being friends and living near each other. And so that all kind of culminated in what, Kind of ended up us working together on our first uh, our first thing, which I don't know if we want to. We should probably skip forward to that, but that's basically we were friends and we were living. We were actually living in the same apartment building, like four floors separated from each other. <laughs> and uh, you know, throughout college and um, and grad school, we'd always like talked about it. Oh, wouldn't it be cool to make this thing? And Tom had definitely made physical things before, but they were always a little bit more like art projects. So Mm. I remember he had this one project that was called the stone mouse, where it was like, what if you made a mouse for your computer, but it was actually a rock that you like (laughs) move, you like jostulate around this. It's like a joystick made out of a rock kind of. He also had like a, he had like a mud tub, which was like controlling computer interfaces with a big tub of mud, kind of these like whimsical but they're basically art projects. They're not practical. They're meant to comment or like say something about technology and our, and our interactions with it. And so I definitely come from things from a more like practical side where I'm Mm -hmm. thinking of, can this be an actual product? And so the glyph, which was our first uh, thing we ever did together was came about, um, With the iPhone 4 introduction, and that was kind of the first smartphone with, uh, like, a really great – it was kind of a stake in the ground of, like, hey, this camera is actually, like, a a legitimately decent camera. We no longer have to call it a smartphone camera. It's just a camera. Yeah. And so I had this idea – well, if this is just, if this is actually a camera camera, then you should be able to mount it on a tripod because there's so many things that can be unlocked when you're able to do that. So I pitched that idea to Tom and he was interested in it. And so just the co- collaboration kind of happened naturally. You know, we were friends, we were living close together. We, oh, we like making things for fun. And so that is what we, uh, we did And we had no ambitions or plans to start a company. It was just, (laughs) let's make this thing. We think it's cool. I wonder how we can sell this thing. Uh, Kickstarter was basically brand new at that point. This was, you know, 2010. So I think Kickstarter was less than a year old. And we were just like, what about this Kickstarter thing? Uh, This seems like this could work. And it... Did <laughs> you know our project kind of blew up, which we can get into. But that was that essentially forced us into having a business because we we really didn't think that was going to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I pulled up the, that original Kickstarter, and I remember it. I didn't know you at the time, uh, but mm-hmm. I remember when this happened. And it just it mm-hmm. it blew up, and, and really, I mean, fifty two hundred backers. I'm sure was way more than y'all ever anticipated. Yeah, I find interesting. Our stories are are, are somewhat similar, and what jumped out at me was, you know, you're doing this program at school inside a larger program. Like I wanted to do, I had to graphic design for my first two years of college, but it was in the fine arts program, so I also had to take Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. painting and charcoal drawing and a bunch of stuff I was really bad at and didn't care about, Mm -hmm. Uh and (laughs) ended up moving uh, and and switching to journalism because it was actually closer to what I actually wanted to do. But it is it is sometimes interesting how. It may not seem like going to school with a bunch of people who became architects would lead you down this path, but the way that you and Tom work together, what you each bring like makes sense. And I, I find that, I find that very interesting. And I think a lot of people who have found success would say, yeah, sometimes it comes from places you don't, you don't expect.
2: Yeah. One thing that I've tried to learn over the years and I've kind of learned about myself is try to pay attention to what you're good at as much as what you're interested in. Because oftentimes what you're good at can excite you or light the fire just as much as what you're interested in. So as an example for me personally, I think throughout college, as I mentioned, I kept thinking, you know, film, movies, TV, like this, if it's not 3D animation, then maybe I'm making actual movies. And I kind of thought that's what I wanted to do. You know, I really like, I, you know, I worship the kind of Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry's, like, you know, these music video directors that were doing these really cool experimental things. And that's kind of what I wanted to be. But I realized my strength wasn't so much in that type of storytelling. And it was more, again, like user experience and like products and how humans interact with things and being really thoughtful about details and, and kind of overthinking things and all of this stuff. I kind of, I found that and I realized, oh, this is something I'm actually good at. And so I started to lean into that more and that pushed me down. So one part of like the story I skipped a little bit is in between Studio Neat and graduating Parsons for like a year there, I was working at Frog as a a UI designer, as an interaction designer. And that was something that I kind of discovered towards the end of Parsons where it was like, oh, I think I'm good at this and it's really fun and it's the right, I like this way of thinking where it's very you know, user first, where it's like, how is a person going to be using this? How let's get every detail right. And that very much, I think, translated to the product design stuff where you're still in that same headspace of how are people using this? If you
1: look at the science of productivity, you're it's increasingly becoming um, known that, you know, the follow your bliss kind of thing isn't enough. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. You know, the idea of looking at what you're good at and really doubling down on that and getting better at it, that's often one of the best ways to have career success and satisfaction. It's not necessarily the bliss part, it's the good part. So I think you're onto something. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Go to textexpander.com MPU right now to get 20% off your plan. Text Expander is one of my favorite automation tools because anybody can do it. If you're listening to me right now, you can use this app and it saves you a ton of time immediately. There's very few automation tools that give you more bang for your buck than Text Expander. Text Expander starts out as a text expansion tool. You know, you type CCELL and it types in your cell phone number for you. But that's just the launching point for Text Expander. Text Expander does so much more. Text Expander adds power tools to text expansion. You can do things like incorporate the contents of your clipboard or automatically insert today's date or yesterday's date, or you can use an AppleScript automation to do even further automation. Like for instance, when I write an email and I write XHI with TextExpander, it inserts the name of the recipient, it says, hi, Jason, and then puts a comma and then there's a line return. You can go so far down the stack with Text Expander of automating your text. Another thing that we don't talk about often enough is as you get better at text expansion, you make a lot of text expansion snippets. Well, Text Expander has a bunch of organization tools for you for your snippets. You can organize them into folders, you can call them through search. It makes it super fast for me and super easy to remember. If you work with other people, you can share your snippets. So, you can make sure the best message gets out. And all of this works pretty much anywhere. You can use it on your Mac, Windows, Android, iPhone, iPad, wherever you're typing, Text Expander is there for you. They've got big groups of preformed snippets that you can download. I've even got a few in their library. You can just download and start using them so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Everybody I know who's invested time in Text Expander comes back wishing they had done it sooner. Text Expander gives you statistics about how much time you've saved with their app, and it is a shocking number once you get in there and start really using the application. I want you to go check it out at TextExpander.com slash MPU. That gets you that discount and lets you know you came from the Mac Power users. Whether you're using it just for yourself or for your team, they've got you covered. TextExpander.com slash MPU one last time. And thanks, Text Expander, who was the original sponsor of the Mac Power users.
0: So, Dan, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your Apple gear. Uh, we're going to talk some about the software and stuff that you're using, but I assume it requires a, a pretty beefy Macintosh. So, what's on your desk?
2: Sure. So, uh, a recent acquisition, I think earlier this year, this summer maybe, acquired a Mac Studio, M2 Max. Uh So, this is replacing basically a decade of 27 inch iMac usage. I had kind of two of them back to back. Uh, so I have the uh, studio display paired with that naturally. Um, and then I also have an M1 MacBook air, which is uh, the way, so I, I guess back up a second, the the way I have landed on doing my computing I've kind of tried all the iterations where it's just you know just a laptop just a laptop paired with a monitor uh just a desktop computer just a desktop with an iPad at, acting like a laptop and where I've eventually landed is desktop and then a the kind of thin client style laptop where mm-hmm. light duty laptop yeah yeah light duty laptop where everything is in the cloud and so I'm not needing a big hard drive, but there's a caveat to that. I'll get to you in a second. Uh, And, and so I don't have to splurge on the laptop because uh, the, you know, the power horse, the workhorse is the, on the desktop.
1: Yeah. Let's uh, let's go down that rabbit hole of Mm -hmm. um, not enough hard drive space (laughs) or or disc space. So how much did you get on your, on your MacBook air?
2: Yeah, so I I believe I'll have to check. I believe I got 512 gigs. And the idea there was I again, I'm I'm using it only for cloud things. Like I don't need my photo library on there. But what got me is with so with Drop I use Dropbox extensively, and I think I have roughly about a terabyte on there. But I was thinking, oh, Dropbox has this feature where you can. I don't know what they call it. Offline mode or something where Selectively it's...
1: Selectively oh, download. Selective,
2: yeah. yeah. Selective download. Something like that where it's only... You can kind of keep everything in the cloud. And then if you need to pull f- a file down, you can do that one at a time. But where this totally bit me is quick preview. Is that what it's called in macOS where you press spacebar to yeah, a preview quick view look. a file? Quick, quick look. look. Quick look does not work because the file is not there. <laughs> and quick look is probably the most important feature I use in Mac OS. Like basically if quick look is broken, then Mac OS is broken to mm. me. So that was a real bummer. So I, I really wish I would have got enough uh, hard drive space to hold all of Dropbox so it could all be downloaded and I wouldn't have to do the the selective offline mode. But other than that it's the laptop is working as intended like I'm not doing heavy work on it it's really just if I want to change environments and you know a- answer some emails or I'm traveling and I need a computer with me um but it's really you know the Mac Studio that I'm you know sitting in front of mm-hmm. 8 hours a day or so
1: As Mac Sparky I get so a lot of email from people asking about build advice like they want to buy a new Mac and I always tell them to upgrade the the disk space and they say well you're just trying to get me to spend more money and i'm like no i actually get more emails from people that are having to buy a new computer that's perfectly fine except they don't have enough disk space i mean this thing apple's done where they put the everything on one chip is great and it gives us all the speed and all the awesomeness that we love but one downside is you can never upgrade that disk space that internal disk space and yeah so often, People have a computer that works fine. They just they just don't have enough space for whatever reason, whether it's quick look or their photos or whatever. That you are well, I think you're well advised to buy bigger than you think you need when you buy your Mac if you want to use it for a while.
2: Yeah, and I so disk space aside, if I I would not be surprised if this M1 MacBook Air for what I'm using it for lasted ten years, Uh, like. That, which is unusual for me for computers, but for what I need it for, it's perfect. But you're exactly right. Like the disk space is what's going to bite me. That's what's going to force me to upgrade in a couple of years, probably because I made a mistake in the, in the purchasing. Uh-huh.
1: And if you look at like the the internals of an M Apple Silicon M chip, it's really not that different from an iPad. I mean, you're a hardware guy. I mean, it's it's basically the whole system on a single chip. And mm-hmm iPads run forever. That's one of the reasons Apple can't sell any of them because people have 10 year old iPads that work fine for them. And I, you know, this is just a hunch, but I think with these new Apple Silicon Macs, we're going to see them lasting a very long time. Yeah, for sure. But that's not the case. You didn't have the disk space problem on your M2 Max, uh, Mac Studio. You went all in on that one.
2: I went all in, yeah. Four, well, not all all in. I did four terabytes. I suppose I could have done eight, but that's a eye-watering uh <laughs> I oh, feel personally sonny. attacked. Yeah. <laughs> uh and so I do have like three of these Samsung uh, SSDs like dangling off the back of it or uh <laughs> to to add some extra hard drive safety because I four terabytes is actually not enough for if we're including my uh photos library so that i have on an external Mm -hmm. um ssd uh, because i would have to go up to eight if i cared about having that on the main disc but i just
0: can't (laughs) yeah it's so expensive so it it sounds like your this mac studio is both personal and work like have you ever separated those things out like this is my work computer and my personal stuff's all over here or for you you want it all in, in one bucket
2: yeah all in one bucket it's all uh it's all intermingled i mean i suppose i have folders file folders
0: but (laughs) yeah uh, (laughs) yeah yeah no it's all it's all on there yeah same i even when i had like a a job you know working for other people and like here's your work laptop like it was so easy for personal stuff just to Mm -hmm. to come in i know some people don't have that luxury right if you're Mac or even your PC notebook is handed to you from the IT gods on high and it's all locked down. It's different, but when you're self-employed or doing your own thing, you can, you know, you can double dip. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, you said you have that paired with a studio display, but as a devout, thoroughly considered listener, I know that <laughs> you did try some other things. Uh, tell us about your your Dell monitor experience.
2: Yes, yeah, so I, yeah, this was like my own my own journey of learning and understanding where, so as I mentioned, I had the previous decade, I had two 27-inch IMAX, kind of back-to-back, five years and five years, a non-retina one and then a retina one. And I got, I kind of convinced myself, I poisoned myself in thinking, you know, I've had a 27-inch monitor for so long, it would really be nice to have a little bit of extra real estate here on the screen. But I pretty quickly decided I wasn't going to splurge on the XDR monitor. So I kind of looked around at, you know, some of the, you know, ultra wide style monitors, but as we all know, those just don't really resolution wise, they're not really a good match for Mac OS. And so. I kind of resigned to just well, I guess I'm sticking with 27 inch. And then Dell introduced this, uh, essentially a competitor to the uh, to the XDR, a uh, you know a 32 inch display, 6K monitor, incredibly ugly, but uh, basically half the cost of an XDR. And so I was very tempted by that, but you know I was I don't know, and I decided against it. And then randomly, just one of those uh, things that you just just by fate came across my uh, Twitter timeline or it might have been in threads. I don't remember where, but uh, it was on sale like eight hundred dollars off. So it was it that brought the price actually within shouting distance of the studio display. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to buy this thing. Uh, I I think this is the monitor I want and it's on sale. I'm going to go for it. So I got it. Set it up, used it for about 30 minutes, and then promptly packed it back into the box and sent it back. (laughs) Uh, it was, I I was kind of shocked by how much I did not like it. I did not expect that reaction because I feel like everyone was kind of pooping on this monitor. Oh, it's so ugly. Look at that huge camera bump. Like, look at that huge forehead. It's all plasticky. And I was kind. I felt like I was going against the grain a little bit, where I was like, "Yes, I agree. This is incredibly ugly." But I think once you're actually using it and just staring at the pixels, you're not. You know, the bezel is going to kind of disappear, and you're not really going to care. And I actually do want a camera that is much nicer than the studio display camera. So the fact that it's this huge honking thing attached to the top of the monitor that actually is a plus for me. So it turns out the camera's garbage. It actually is worse somehow than this, the studio display camera, just in my interpretation, which was shocking to me because it is so much bigger. You have in your head big camera, big lens equals higher quality, but mm-hmm. clear, clearly that it's not the case with this camera. So we're going to
1: make it bigger, but worse. Yeah,
2: how does that sound? <laughs> um, the screen resolution wise was fine. Like it is 6k and it is retina resolution, but I just had this moment of realizing, Oh, I have been spoiled for the past 10 years of having these Apple displays in front of me where it was just these little things that reminded me of kind of the pre Apple, you know, my, my windows, my, you know, my Dell, I had a Dell tower (laughs) prior to, uh, to getting into Apple computers and, the 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 way the I don't know if it's a a screen problem. I mean, I assume it is. Like the, it's almost like the pixels dimmed as they got to the edge of the bezel, to where it looked like a drop shadow, almost kind of going around the rim of the display. Like it was not crisp, uh, brightness wise, edge to edge. So that was a huge turn off. And then in actually setting up the thirty two inch monitor, I thought. You know what? I think this is actually too big. (laughs) And I'm sure if I used it for a while, I would get used to it. But it was the first time where I was feeling, oh, I'm actually having to like move my head aggressively to see things. It was almost like too overwhelming how big it was. So again, I, you know, I, we know, you know, we know people and friends and podcasters who have the XDR and obviously they're, they've gotten used to it and are very satisfied with the extra real estate. So I'm sure that would have happened if I kept it, but that was another surprise with the monitor is, oh, I thought this would be a pure win real estate wise, but actually it's crossed some invisible threshold where it is feeling a little bit cumbersome to have everything arranged on such a huge canvas. So I packed it up and returned it and went to the studio display and it's been good. You know, it's, it's, it feels like home cause it's what I'm used to. And so I've been decently happy with that. I understand
1: that you would, you know, you do get spoiled with Apple hardware and their kind of detail and their eye for detail, but I think you would have got used to the size. That's, that's where you yeah. lose me yeah uh, yeah i think so speaking as someone who has a big screen you do get used to it in fact you start to think it looks a little small after a while but (laughs) yeah but the uh yeah no i
2: get it like
1: um you know i haven't i maybe we're going to talk about this in a future episode but i i had a second display again for a very short period of time Mm because you know you you just kind of know right immediately at least you were able to return it and get yourself Mm -hmm. into a studio display yeah what about the mobile stuff? I mean, do you are you? I mean, do you primarily work at a Mac or? I mean, do you do you rock an iPad? What, what's your mobile
2: gear? Yeah, so I had uh, or I do I have an iPad eleven inch Pro. This is from it's a pre M one, so I don't remember what that was an A something, and I bought that iPad prior to my MacBook Air with the intention of that being my kind of lightweight, thin client, you know, mobile workstation, you know, I got the fancy keyboard with it and the whole thing. And I really wanted that to work because it was, it's appealing for many reasons. And I know this is a tale as old as time. And (laughs) it seems to be a journey that many people go down, but I just, it just felt like I was fighting it more than it was helping me and so i got the macbook air and it was just like ah you know a glass of of cold water in hell or whatever where mm-hmm. it was like okay i was i was really trying too hard to force something and now that i have this really thin and super fast and nice laptop like this is actually what i wanted i it was wrong of me to try to turn this ipad into a laptop this is what i wanted but then interestingly I took the, you know, the keyboard case off the iPad and just put a regular smart cover on it. And it kind of made me love the iPad again. It's like, oh, man, this is so thin. This feels like a future computer <laughs> again. Like this is a, a really delightful thing. If I just want to flip it open to, ha- you know, have watch something passively in the background or, you know, just bring it on the couch and type out a couple of emails, it became delightful again when I stopped trying to force it into this laptop role. And so I don't love that I kind of have three devices, not even including an iPhone, uh, that feels like too many. And if I would have to lose one, it would obviously be the iPad that goes away. But it is nice that they finally slotted into their, their proper roles in my life. And they all feel like they're kind of doing the jobs that I'm asking them to do.
1: Yeah. You know, Dan, I am so with you and the listeners are probably tired of me saying this, but I had this adversarial relationship with my iPad for like five years because mm-hmm. I kept trying to make it do stuff. And, and, you know, blames a little bit on Apple. They keep making commercials, calling it a computer, you know, and it, but it's just not that it is what they sell it to be. You know, the thing that is uh, good for light, uh for con- consumption and light creation like for writing mm-hmm. i find it really useful because it's kind of a unit device and i mm-hmm. can just work mm-hmm. on my words it's like having an old-fashioned typewriter but you know as soon as i try to turn it into something more like a podcasting station or something that right, it's just right. not designed to do all i'm doing is just banging my head against a brick wall and as soon as i stopped banging against my head against a brick wall
2: the ipad felt a lot better <laughs> Yeah. And I think actually the, I had a similar experience with the Apple watch where I, you know, so I was, I was a day one, you know, series zero Apple watch user because I was, I wasn't fully convinced by it, but I was willing to try it. And I had a similar Experience where it was just like these apps are so slow and it's not really doing the things I think it should do. And then I found the joy in the Apple Watch by asking it to do less. And so maybe that's like a little bit. Of a cop out or feels a little bit like apologist for Apple stuff, but
1: yeah, I'm, yeah, some Android guy right now is just like yelling at his, <laughs> at his <laughs> dashboard, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: but it's uh, basically my Apple Watch is now the time. Like I, my the watch face I use is literally only the time and no other complications, and then I get notifications, which I have very pared down, so I'm basically only getting messages, either iMessages or DMs. Uh, I use Siri to start timers and that's pretty much it. Uh, Occasionally I'll look at like a grocery list on my watch and, uh, initiate a workout occasionally. And that's pretty much it. So I, I'm, I'm using what 1% of the, of the power of a, or utility, of an Apple watch, but it's actually makes me really happy. As soon as I stopped trying to force it to do all these things and kind of be this everything watch. And, and instead it's like, why don't you just be a regular watch that tells the time, but has these really nice little extra features. Then it became something that I really enjoyed. And I actually, I feel like I'm fully committed now because I just, I have a series five, uh, the titanium one and the battery was down into like 60-something percent battery health. So I sent it off uh, to Apple to get a fresh battery in it. And those, it was only gone for, I don't know, four or five days probably. It was a pretty quick turnaround. And I really missed it. Like I getting notifications on my phone instead of my wrist was a huge bummer. It was like, I don't want to have to take my phone out of my pocket. Like now I'm in my phone. Like the exact value proposition when it was first pitched is like oh you don't have to take your phone out you can just see your notifications on your wrist that to me is completely true and i really missed just being able to glance at the notification and and uh decide to act on it or not versus the needing to pull my phone it sounds like such a small thing and such almost like a whiny like oh you poor baby you had to pull your phone out but that friction, it really makes a huge difference and and a uh it's kind of a distraction free. You can kind of get this ping and glance at it, but you're not doing this thing or initiating this thing. And I find that really helpful.
1: Plus, if you uh, you know, have a heart attack or get in a car accident or you fall down, the Apple Watch has kind of got your back, which is yeah. that's you know, that's a that's quite a plus. Mm-hmm.
0: How does the iPhone fit in for you, other than not wanting to take it out of your pocket? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I
2: have a uh an iPhone 13 Pro and it's great. I have no complaints about it. I I feel like we're in a really interesting time with the phones and I don't know how to articulate this exactly without sounding cynical because that's not what I'm trying to get across, but I feel the the itch To upgrade has almost completely gone away. And I don't know why. Because basically, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember my history, but I think starting with the iPhone 4, the 4, 4s, 5, 5s, 6. Yeah, so there was like a five-year run for me where I was upgrading every year, doing a year-over-year upgrade, because it was such an exciting time. And I feel like there were such big leaps every year that I would really lust for the new model and, you know, try to find a way to make it work to where I could get a new one every year. And I kind of switched to every two years, but occasionally it would still be every year. If there was a really like the, uh, I think I went straight from the seven to the 10 because like, I wasn't going to skip the 10. That was such an amazing leap forward. I feel like there's somewhat of a plateau where, I think the camera improvements, despite all the marketing, have really tapered off. Like they're very incremental improvements year to year. Like I think if you did a side by side photo comparison from an iPhone 12 or an iPhone 13 and an iPhone 15, I would suspect that most people would not really see a quality difference. That's just my suspicion. And then similar with, uh, you know, the processing, these chips are so fast. Like there's nothing about this phone, this 13 Pro that feels slow in any way. So I've kind of mentally checked out of this, uh, this kind of annual upgrade or even semi-annual. And uh, I'm kind of just going to ride this. As long as I can to see like just waiting until the one is introduced where it's like, oh, that seems like a feature that would be really rough to live without. Because the thing I've noticed is they do these things that feel really enticing initially and then they kind of fade away. And maybe you both, if you have more modern phones, you can speak to this if this is true or not. I feel like the Dynamic Island, as an example, was like a, oh, holy cow, what a clever idea. And I was really excited by it. And I thought it was such an awesome kind of Apple at its finest. Like, let's take a... Let's take a negative and turn it into a positive. Let's take this hole in the display and turn it into something useful. Like, I thought it was really clever and really cool. But my my read on kind of how people have reacted to that is just like, yeah, it's pretty good. But, you know, not all the developers have taken advantage of it. And, um, you know, it provides some functionality, but it isn't this, like, game-changing feature that it seemed like it might have been when it was first introduced. I think similarly you could maybe make the same argument for the action button where it, I my mind is kind of going oh man wouldn't that be so great to attach that to a, a you know a camera quick camera launch or any number of things i could put shortcuts on it or whatever and i think people are definitely doing that but i've all i feel like i've heard whispers that it's like yeah this is good but not this kind of life changing game changing feature that i thought it might have been And so I feel like it's a it's for me, it's kind of a practice, I guess, in patience where it's like, yeah, you might be really excited for this new thing that's making you want to upgrade, but just just like give it a month and (laughs) the the excitement will kind of die down. And then you'll probably have the inertia then to just wait out at least another year to uh, to see what the next phone brings.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, clearly the iPhone and other smartphones, like they've reached this maturity point where mm-hmm. you're right. Gone are the days of like four, four S, five, five S, where we were getting big improvements basically across the board for everything. And it is uh, slower and I think more refinement these days. Um, but really, like I, I, you're not definitely not unique in that. Like right? the average. Mm-hmm. lifespan of a phone has only gotten longer and longer over the years and in a way like what apple announces this year isn't even all that relevant to most people for two or three years like the next time they buy a phone they'll get the middle one or the cheapest one and that'll be the 15, you know eventually mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so yeah you know i think i think your reaction to that is 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 actually pretty pretty reasonable
2: mm-hmm
1: Although I will say that action button is pretty great. <laughs> if, you, if you like if you like shortcuts cuz I mine is totally contextual like if I'm at Disneyland it turns into a camera if I'm working on a podcast it does a different thing, you know. So it's it's kind of cool. Uh, yeah. In that regard. That's rad, yeah.
0: Yeah, I just have mine still set up to the camera because I haven't really figured out what I want, but What I like most about it is I can't accidentally take my phone off silent anymore. You know, like if the button Mm. gets like caught in the case (laughs) or in your pocket, uh, that can't happen anymore because it's all software. Yeah, that's nice. This episode of MPU is made possible by Masterclass. Learning something new feels good. This fall, you can learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass, from leadership to effective communication to cooking and more. Whether you're watching Masterclass on TV, listening in audio mode, in the app, or on their site, the quality speaks for itself. Masterclass instructors can kind of act as your own mentor, helping you reach your next level. How much would it be to take a one-on-one class from the world's best? Hundreds of thousands of dollars easily. But with a Masterclass annual membership, it's $10 a month. That's right, memberships start at $120 a year for unlimited access to one on one classes with all 180 plus masterclass instructors. So you can learn how to negotiate a raise with Chris Voss or manage your relationships with Esther Perel. There are over 180 classes to pick from, with new classes added every month. One that I really love is from the Emmy Award winning science educator who shaped me as a young child. Bill Nye, Uh, he has this awesome, awesome course about applying the scientific method and basic problem-solving skills to everyday problems that you experience out in the world. Not just like, you know, sort of uh, education, uh, you know, scientific, like not just that arena, but out in the world as well. Evaluating information and thinking like a scientist. Bill Nye is just awesome. You too can boost your confidence, find practical takeaways to apply to your life and work. And if you're a business owner or a team leader, why not use Masterclass to empower and create future-ready employees and leaders? And right now, MPU listeners will get 15% off an annual membership at Masterclass.com MacPower. That's 15% off at Masterclass.com slash mac power check out the link in the show notes Our thanks to masterclass for the support of the show and relay fm so dan i you know
1: steven and i make podcasts right you know uh, we don't make physical products and uh, i both of you are kind of fascinated tell us about life at studio neat you guys in my mind it's kind of like uh that Willy Wonka, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) And there's like all kinds of tables with black cloths draped over them and, you know, massive 3d printers firing off titanium models. (laughs) Uh, Tell me that's all true, please, Dan.
2: Oh yeah. That's exactly what it's like. We've got a chocolate river flowing through the studio. It's It's fascinating. Uh, No, it's, I mean, it's fun. I think it's fun. I think it's also, there were many times, so just a little bit of a background, like before we started Studio Neat, as I mentioned, I was doing interaction design and Tom was essentially a developer. And so we've made a few iPhone apps uh, with Studio Neat and that that's kind of our natural, like we should be making apps because that's what we were doing prior to Studio Neat. And there have been many times when we're really kind of up against it or having a really challenging manufacturing obstacle. And we're just like, man, it would be so great to just make software (laughs) instead of physical things. So I appreciate that. You think it's super cool that we make physical stuff and it definitely is cool, but it's also, there is some real butting up against the physical realities of things is not always uh, a fun place to be. But anyways, yeah, Yeah. Well, what do you want to know? I guess. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, what what's the setup? I mean, you've talked about you've got your M2 Mac. I mean, how do you do the? You know, when you how do you go
2: from idea to shipping product? I mean, gotcha. So it everything starts as you would expect with with an idea, and this is this always starts with either Tom or I texting the other person. And saying, "Hey, what do you think about this? Or what about this? Uh, what do you think of this idea? Is is there anything there? And if we're both kind of into it, we've kind of joked, it's the way we decide to do a product or not is is like launching a missile from a submarine, where we both have to turn our key at the same time. So it's like it's a good indication for us that we're both." Interested in an idea, or it seems like we're both, oh, there's something here. That's a pretty good indication that this is something we should be pursuing.
1: Yeah, it kind of has to be a hell, yes, right? It can't yeah. just be a yeah, maybe, you know yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. exactly. I mean, sometimes it, it it is like that where the other person feels really strongly about it and they're able to convince the other one like that that has happened before, too, but generally, we feel the best when it's like, oh, yeah, this we're on a something here, this this could be something. And so, uh, it will start like that with just a conversation, kicking ideas around pretty quickly. It gets into 3d modeling, which, uh, might be surprising. You would think there would be like a analog, like a sketching phase in between that. But Tom is so adept at, uh, modeling. He uses uh, fusion 360, I believe. Is the software that he uses, and he's so kind of quick. That's that's almost his uh, initially, like his sketchbook is just doing a quick 3D model of what this thing could be, and so he'll start sending me. They're not even renders; they're just screenshots of what he's looking at in the uh, you know in the application, and I'll just quickly reply with, "Yeah, that's you know that seems like that's the right direction," or "No, what about this?" or just throwing throwing other ideas out. So that's like kind of the quick ideation to, to get at least on the same page or, or in a place where we can start refining. That usually happens in the 3D modeling software. And then once we have kind of landed on uh, in, in the 3D, what we think is like more or less the correct form for like a, a starting place, Then we'll usually move into physical prototyping, which is, uh, can involve, it depends what the object is. It can involve any manner of things. I mean, my, my favorite example and crudest example is when we were designing the panel book, literally the first prototype we ever did was just a sketchbook that I sliced down to be smaller (laughs) in the ratio of a pano book. (laughs) Like it was that simple to just take and be like, oh, you know, snip, how does this feel? (laughs) Like, how does this sit sit in front of a keyboard? But generally it's, uh, we have some 3D printers. Uh, We actually have like a little 3D printer factory now. I think we have like three of them that are kind of set up in Tom's office because we, one of our products, uh, the uh, material dock, has a 3D printed part in it. So we, we need those for actual like part production, but we, so we have access to them for prototyping as well. And I think he has another, a different 3D uh, printer as well for that's, I think a little bit higher fidelity maybe that we can use also. Um, but sometimes 3D printing is not the right tool for the prototype. Sometimes we'll need uh something to be machined or so we we have a a little desktop CNC thing that can get us some of the way there. Tom has like a, like a really simple lathe that can kind of do some, you know, metal turning to, so he's, he's made some pen prototypes that way. So sometimes we can get they're pretty close to seeing the form of it and feeling it in the hand and, and seeing what it's like. But sometimes we actually need it to be made properly to really move it forward or judge. So like, for example, with, with Keen, which is our latest thing, which is a, you know, fancy, super nice box cutter. We had made many, many 3d prints and, that was really helpful in refining the design and you know the way your thumb sits on the slider and how exactly the slider is designed. But we really needed to see it fully in metal to, uh, to be able to understand some things about it that weren't understandable with just a 3D print. And it was too complicated of an operation to be able to do on our little desktop uh cnc thing so for that you either have to you know find someone that can make it for you or in i in our case we engaged with our manufacturer who made this made like basically 10 or 20 production samples which more or less means they're making them you know, with the machines that they'll use to make the production run and they're, and they're more or less what they will be, but uh, we're still allowed to make changes. Like we're not committed to that Mm -hmm. exact design if there's something wrong with it or uh, whatever. And then it's, it's quite expensive to do that, but fortunately they let us like apply that cost to the manufacturing run once we move forward and get ready to manufacture. So, So that takes some of the sting off. So that you know, we get to that phase, and then there's still tweaking to do and evaluation, and we there's still some changes we make, and so Tom is continuing to you know refine the the drawings and the models to get that all sorted out, and uh, and then so now with Keen, just to continue using that as an example, we're at the stage now where uh, we've passed. I don't know if we've given them the drawings. I think we're, our goal is to, within the next couple of days, and then that will essentially start the production process where we, we will again get one last set of samples to just make sure everything is good. And then if it is, then we can kind of say go and they'll start producing them. And then we're kind of on that whole journey.
1: Where did you pick up, like, material science knowledge. Cause I know you guys like you use stainless steel, you use wood, you, you're using a lot of materials uh, with the products you make. And, you know, you haven't, you know, I haven't heard that in your education, but you seem to really know
2: your way around it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's credit to Tom. Mostly he's just, uh, he's very good at that stuff. I don't know where he picked that up. I think he just kind of picked it up out of necessity. He's always been, a maker and interested in those things. You know, he was like, I mentioned, he was always doing these little art projects or these interesting kind of self-initiated things. And so I think he just learned a lot of it over time. And then one crucial lesson we've learned over the years of doing studio neat is really the thing that needs to be done to learn about this stuff is so old fashioned, but it's just picking up the phone and calling people, specifically manufacturers. So oftentimes we will have an idea for a product. It will be like a new category and and it will require new manufacturing methods or new materials. And so we'll Google around to find someone that makes something in that category or something similar. And Tom will literally just call them and ask them questions like, hey, how do you do this? What is the process for this? What materials do you use for this? And they're almost always happy to talk about it and answer questions. So that's really it feels like very an old school like, yeah, you just got to call people and talk to them. But <laughs> that is actually the, the way you figure out uh, how to do these these things you've never done before, because it would be a really hard thing to kind of just Google around and figure out yourself. It's it's kind of a shortcut or a cheat code in some ways to just call an expert and get them to tell you.
0: <laughs> I find it interesting how much software seems to be involved at the, at the beginning. You mentioned some 3D modeling software. Do you know what he's using?
2: Yeah, I believe he's using Fusion 360, okay. which I think is like an Autodesk. Uh, yeah. product if I'm not mistaken yeah
0: yeah I mean uh, when I think about product development maybe it's just my mind like I go to like you know people designing cars out of a out of a, a thing of clay right <laughs> They're like <Yeah>. shaping the <laughs> fenders of this car like what is it what is it going to look like but yeah I would imagine that doing it in software lets you not only iterate more quickly but much more affordably because you've got the cost of software and of time but you're not spending a lot of material, you're not spending time with manufacturers to to work on something like before it's ready to be in the real world, if that makes sense.
2: For sure. Yeah. And I think that's a total Tom thing is he's a very uh he's very efficient and he has an incredible amount of confidence in kind of his own abilities or what the tools can provide to him or what it is he needs to get out of the tool that he's got him not, not afraid to quote unquote skip steps or kind of go straight to the thing because he knows like it'll be okay. And he's not going to lose sight of something. So, like I said before, it's kind of surprising that we don't really start with just sketching, you know, something on paper or, or like, yeah, that way we could make things out of clay or, or mold them or do really crude prototypes, you know, out of cardboard or, or whatever, which we have done in the past for some things, but it's just, he's got, you know, the the 3D modeling stuff is he's become so adept at it that it really, we just go straight to that often. And it doesn't seem to have any downsides to just doing it that way.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I would just add to that. I, I play with a uh, Fusion 360 as well for my uh, hobby stuff I do. And um, they have a consumer like hobbyist, a license where you can sign up for it and use it for free. It's not going to have all the features that I'm sure Tom's using, but the, um, but if you're out there listening and you're interested, they've got a fully compliant Mac um, client and you can do it for free.
0: So Dan, you mentioned a lot of uh, Tom's role in this. Uh, how do y'all go back and forth in this process of, of refining a design coming up with the features? Is it something where he will go away and like, present you with something? Are you talking throughout the process? How does it look?
2: It's exactly that. It's yeah. And we've joked about that a little bit where it's, you know, Tom will make something and then just be like, here it is. What do you think? <laughs> you <know? laughs> and I'll tear it to shreds usually, or, you know, I'll, you know, we're very comfortable with each other. So there's no kind of holding back. Like I, I like this, I don't like this. And And then he'll be like, okay. And, (laughs) and merrily, you know, go back to the drawing board to do another iteration. So generally, yeah, that's, that's kind of how things are structured uh, where it's like, he's the, the, the iterator, you know, the engineer, and I'm kind of like the feedback person, I guess, or the Mm -hmm. the critiquer. I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but That is generally how the roles are defined when we're doing products and it's, it's worked really well. And he's another way to think about it is, and he said this himself where he's, when he's heads down like that, just really in the details of how all these things work, he needs someone like me to be uh, like a level higher of thinking about it more holistically or thinking about the product and like the storytelling and how the marketing is going to fit in because he kind of can't be thinking about that when he's like solving these little engineering challenges. So there's back. And so it's like, he pops up to show me the thing and it's, and it's like, well, we need to be considering this because of this aspect of the marketing or the story or whatever. And then, so I think that, that back and forth really works well for us.
1: This episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com MPU and get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using the code MPU. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. You can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything. Your products, services, and even the content you create. Squarespace has got everything you need all in one place. With Squarespace, you can make the most of the Fluid Engine, Squarespace's next-generation website design system, to unlock your creativity more easily than ever before. Start with a best-in-class website template and customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. You can stretch your imagination online with Fluid Engine. It's built-in and ready to go on any new Squarespace website. And you can sell your products On an online store. Whether you sell physical or digital products, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. And when it comes to payments, your customers get flexible payment options. You can make checkouts seamless for your customers with simple but powerful payment tools, accept credit cards, PayPal, and Apple Pay, and offer customers the option to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and ClearPay. This stuff used to be so difficult, gang, but Squarespace makes it as easy as clicking a box. I have built and ran multiple Squarespace websites. It is my go-to place on the internet. Squarespace is where you start when you want to make a website. It just makes it so easy. Anybody can build it, but you're not compromising on power because they have all the tools. So go check it out for yourself at squarespace.com/mpu for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch go to squarespace.com/mpu and use offer code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Once again, that's squarespace.com/slash MPU and code MPU when you decide to sign up to get that 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Mac Power users. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. Well, it's working. Because yeah. you guys, I mean, <laughs> I, I have bought, I think, almost everything you guys make. I just love awesome. the the quality of it. I got the email last week that um, you guys are now making a, a new stainless steel Mark One pen. Oh yeah! And I'm like, oh yeah, I think I, I could probably hold off on of that. Then, <laughs> then I ended up ordering it anyway because it's all black and it looks. <laughs> <cool>. Thank you. <laughs> I just love the idea of a small group of people. Um, you know, you sitting there uh, using their Macs, coming up with these crazy ideas and making these products and putting them out in the world. I think it's we don't see enough of that anymore because so much of what we do is is digital goods, or it's something that's punched out of a factory in China, and and you know, there's not a story behind it and not that intentionality that you guys bring to your products.
2: Well, thank you. That's great to hear. Yeah, I think that actually touches on a little bit of a potential challenge I see for us moving forward is I think 10 years ago, it was really easy to communicate that story of, oh, we're just two guys and we're making these things and isn't this cool and we're using Kickstarter. And... I feel like it's become harder to tell that story. And there are lots of brands that have cropped up, I think, that kind of try to feel like that story, even if that actually isn't their story, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. And so it's like, how do we compete in that marketplace where it's like, no, for real, like we are, we're still doing this, you know, 10 years in, Uh, you know, you see these kind of just DTC brands that try to feel small, but they're still, you know, VC backed or whatever, or, or, you know, have all these kind of instruments and levers in place to with all these like advertising mechanisms and all these things and so that i see is kind of our maybe our challenge for the next decade for the next 10 years is how do we stand out and how do we make sure our story is being communicated because we do think that's you know an important part of of the storytelling of these products
0: i think y'all do a really good job at that at that communication i mean having something as simple as like really clear photography, uh, your use of, of stop motion video, which I desperately want to talk about because I find it incredible. <laughs> um, even y'all's marketing. I know y'all have grown in those areas over the last couple of years. It still feels like, hey, you know, it's it's Dan and Tom. It's our buddies making stuff. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> um, but I do know, I do know the company has grown. You have a larger portfolio of products than you ever have. Uh, how have you managed some of that growth? Do you have processes or tools that you were using that maybe worked in the beginning that don't work so well now?
2: That's a great question and that and that is a timely question because this is this year, kind of starting at the beginning of the year, has been somewhat of a stake in the ground, a little bit of a turning point where we've decided. We need to put more energy in not necessarily growth for growth's sake, but we felt like we were pretty we've been pretty stagnant over the past few years. And specifically, we felt like our port our growing portfolio of products wasn't getting the attention it deserved. And this is a byproduct of this company being formed by two product designers and not by two business people and that we release a product and then we immediately just want to jump to the next product and start designing it and releasing the next thing, which is an important part of our business. And the fact that we continue to launch products is what has kept us in business, but we, it didn't feel good about letting uh, letting our past portfolio products kind of wither on the vine. It felt like there there's not attention or love being paid to them, even though we think they're great products. And uh, many of them are these kind of evergreen products where unlike kind of in early years when we were making, you know, an iPhone 4 tripod mount, it's like, well, that's going to be, you know, obsolete in two years. Whereas our pen, you know, our fancy click pen, the Mark One we could still be selling that in 30 years, the exact same thing we sell now. Um, And so that is exciting to where our lineup of products has become more evergreen in that way. And so it's become a question of how do we support those and how do we give them the love and attention that we think they deserve? So this has been a big year for us in that direction. We've hired people for the first time. Uh, nobody is full time yet. I think one person is almost all the way full time, but we have basically three people that are working part time to help with assembly stuff, which is primarily like our pens and stuff have a, some heavy duty, like assembly tasks that need to be done. And so we hired people to take that off of our plates so that we can, um, you know, be focused on new products or other things. And then we also hired uh, someone to help with customer service, which took that off my plate. I was doing that previously. And so the interesting about bringing other people into the fold for the first time is you just realize, (laughs) A, how much institutional knowledge there is that needs to be put somewhere. It can't just exist in our heads anymore. It was perfectly fine when it was just the two of us, and we were kind of on the same wavelength, and we kind of always knew what was going on. But that doesn't work when you have other people that also need to be clued in. So we started to, to, you know, build systems and things and documents to where this stuff could live in a place that can be accessed by other people. So yeah, I mean, we've started using uh, Airtable to do. We've had like just a huge initiative to basically catalog all of our inventory parts and the the various states of the parts and the various uh uh like assembly uh like how far in the assembly process they are uh any outstanding POs we have for manufacturers and when we expect us to get to get in like all of this stuff for the past you know decade plus we we're kind of just flying by the seat of our pants and it was working. Okay. But we could tell, it was pretty evident that this was all going to fall apart. If once we start bringing people in and we, and we don't have an organized way to deal with this. So that's been probably the biggest change we've ever gone through at studio Neat, And it, you know, it felt pretty rough for a while. And that it was like, man, we sure are putting a lot of energy into this. Like, I, (laughs) I hope this is the right thing to be doing, but we finally have got it to a place where it feels like, okay, this is actually a tool that is now providing benefit and and makes sense and other people can use it. And so that's felt really good to kind of get over that hurdle. And now we're, we feel like we're kind of rolling.
1: What are you using to document institutional knowledge? I mean, Airtable is a database, but uh, it's not really great
2: for documents. Right. So we started using notion as well for like the documents. So, yeah, there's a few things. We use Basecamp, which is kind of Tom and I for a while were using that just the two of us, like on a free plan. Yeah, And then we went away from it for a while because we were like, I think we can actually just use email. <laughs> there's only two of us uh, yeah. and, you know, Google Docs or whatever. And then we uh, kind of came back to it when we were getting a little more organized. And that is that's a pretty good like base operation you know where we can like stick things that make sense
1: and the advantage of Basecamp, honestly is when you have other people it's super easy for them to to grok it exactly
2: exactly that's yeah, pretty straightforward um so that i've been pretty happy with that we've moved on to a pay- paid plan now so that was a big big step for us uh as we started using notion recently and that has been pretty cool and uh tom has been geeking out about it he's really likes it and so that has been nice, and I'm—I mean, maybe we could move a lot of what we're doing in Basecamp to there. I'm not exactly sure if that would be appropriate or not. I know there's, you know, different functions, but there's probably some stuff that could be translated over. And then, yeah, and then like I mentioned, Airtable is kind of all of the tracking of, you know, inventory and these databases of all the parts and their their status and shipments and all that stuff. We're we're managing in Airtable.
1: What's the hard part of a manufacturing business that nobody realizes?
2: Inventory, I would say. Uh, It's the inventory slash cash flow, where just comparing it to uh, software, where if you are averaging 100 sales a day, and then you get fireballed and now you're for the next week or so, you've got 10 times that or a hundred times that, that is awesome. That's just pure profit. <laughs> and like, yes, you might have uh, you know, more customer service or whatever, or more bugs are found and you're kind of hustling to deal with that. But in general, it can scale in an immediate way like that. And it's kind of doable. Uh, you could e- even a single person could handle that for the most part. Whereas with us, if we, if that happens, then we're just out of stuff and we can't sell it anymore. <laughs> and so yeah. it, it's, it yeah. all becomes this game of prediction and guessing. And you can't buy too much because then you, you don't have any cash to, you know, place the next order or whatever. And now all your cash is locked up in unsold inventory and so it's really this dance that uh, I—if you probably ask any physical uh, product maker, they would probably give the same answer. Is kind of like inventory management slash cash flow.
0: A lot of y'all's projects start on Kickstarter. Of course, the the Glyph originally did that campaign that that blew up all those years ago. But y'all have continued to return to Kickstarter. Uh, and one thing that I think really makes your campaigns. Uh, stand out is the use of, of stop motion. And I'd love to know some of the tools you're using to pull those videos off.
2: Oh yeah. So that is a, I had mentioned earlier wanting to uh, kind of go down this video route, whether that be filmmaking or, you know, the kind of 3d stuff this is your pixar muscles and the pixar muscles yeah but the stop motion specifically is something i discovered along the way and it just it, it it perfectly aligned with again like what i thought i was good at which is seeing things in this kind of linear way and and seeing the kind of arc of the progression of how things need to move and then it this kind of the cadence and the rhythm that is required with stop motion i feel like i'm really good at but crucially it it's an art it's an animation medium that doesn't require fine art skills like illustration or uh or anything like that because that is one thing I really and that's what steered me away from the Pixar thing is just like I'm not a good renderer like I've never really been that good of an an illustrator and so stop motion is something that I fell into I mean even in high school I think I was just doing these super crude I remember I would borrow my dad's camcorder and it could do quote unquote stop motion and that you would press the sh- the record button and it would record a fourth of a second onto uh, like a, you know, a DV tape <laughs> or it might've been, it might've been VHS at that point. Um, and so you're essentially able to make, you know, four frames a second, <laughs> really crude stop motion videos. But I remember I was making those as a kid. So it's something I've always loved. And we, um, We started making them for our uh, product videos uh, early on. And then I remember with the Mark 1, I did a first pass at the the video. And previously, how I was making videos is just completely winging it. Like I was making them the same way I made them in high school, which is take a picture, move it a little, take a picture, move it a little, (laughs) and then you look at the result and hope that you like it. And uh so that's how i made the our first iteration of the mark 1 video which nobody has seen and tom gave me some honest feedback i'm just like you know this isn't quite singing this isn't quite working this isn't exciting enough you know we think we have a really cool product here but this isn't the lighting is not quite right and the animation is not quite doing it And so I took that as an initiative to like really kind of do it up proper. And so I did a little bit of a research and found that there's this piece of software called Dragonframe, which seems to be the best and maybe only uh, like professional stop motion software. Anytime I see a behind-the-scenes featurette of a stop-motion movie. I'll try to peek at the monitors that they're using, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's Dragonframe. You're using, you're using the same software I use. So I think it, it truly is the industry standard for stop-motion animation. Very powerful. And it's not... Crazy expensive. It's like, you know, 300 bucks, which is a lot of money for a piece of software, but that's in the same category as Final Cut Pro or, or Logic mm-hmm. or anything like that. So it's attainable uh, and it's really cool. So I'm pro- again, I'm probably only using, you know, 1% of the power <laughs> it's capable of, but you know, you can tether your camera with HDMI, you know, to your computer. And so you can see what the camera is seeing on your screen. You can control all of the, you know, the shutter speed and the aperture and everything just directly from your computer if you want to. But the key thing that it unlocks is basically previewing your animation as you go. So you are taking frames and those frames are just being inserted into a timeline in the software. And then you can preview that at any time to see, you know, how the movement is going so far. So that's Key thing number one, the other key thing you can do is the idea of planning. So you can um, you can like draw graphs or like lines and that, so for example, let's say I'm having like doing a very simple animation of having like a notebook slide onto the screen, but I want it to kind of ease on, which means it's going kind of fast and then it slows down as it comes to a stop you can basically create that animation with like a lot. You can draw a line and then say, I want this animation to take 15 frames or whatever. And it puts little tick tick marks and they're all evenly spaced apart. And then you can say, okay, I actually want this to ease to a slop. So I'm going to, to a stop. So I'm going to grab this handle and change the like, velocity graph basically and then the tick marks you see them update to where oh they're they're far apart at the beginning and they get really close together and so you can use those those tick marks as essentially guides to where the notebook should be along this animation path so that's like a very simple example of a planning you can do but you can do all kinds of stuff including shooting a video that you use as a template so an example of that is in the in the new Mark one video that I then made with the software that you can see, you know, on the Kickstarter or on our Web page. The animation starts with this pen floating in and then it writes out the word hello on a notebook. And so that animation of the pen writing, I, I recorded a video of myself writing it out with like the same framing, you know, from the same vantage point. And then that video became essentially a template for, I I then knew where the pen should be positioned as I was doing the animation. Okay. So it just gave it kind of the right fluidity and the right timing um, so that it looked right and wasn't kind of janky or, or mistimed or whatever. So, Those type of things you could do, I was, I was not doing before I was just completely winging it. And so once I had those features, it just kind of unlocked this new creative channel to, uh, to do these videos for our products. And yeah, it's been super fun. I really enjoy doing it.
0: I never would have thought about the ability to use an actual video as your guide. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, it's so smart and obvious as soon as you said it, it's like, Oh yeah, like if you need to know how this would work, it's just do it like normal. And- yeah, 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 yeah. You <laughs> see, I mean,
2: you see it all the time uh, in in Pixar. You know, again, the kind of the beso- behind the scenes featurettes where pretty much every animator has a mirror like on their desk that they'll they'll be you know doing these exaggerated facial expressions to uh, so they kind of as a guide for their own work, or oftentimes they will. You know, record a video and then use that as a template for, uh, for the animation. So yeah, I think that's actually a pretty common strategy.
1: I mean, you can find really old videos of Walt Disney bringing rain, uh, deer into the studio when they were making Bambi. Mm-hmm.
0: This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. The waiting game is a game with no real winners, and when it comes to hiring. You can't wait for great talent to find you. You need to go find them. And you will find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed because it is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So instead of spending hours across multiple job sites combing through a bunch of people to find candidates with the right skills, you can use Indeed's powerful hiring platform to attract and interview and hire all together. It is the most powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools that help you find matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the very moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. Indeed's hiring platform really is great because it gets you one step closer to the hire by immediately matching you with those quality candidates. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements, making it unbelievably powerful, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. Join more than the three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash MPU. This offer is good for a limited time, so go claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash MPU. That's I-N-D-E-E-D, Indeed.com slash MPU, to support the show by saying you heard about it on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the show and Relay FM. Dan,
1: we always like to end the show uh sharing some of our favorite apps and services. And I know you've got several good ones here. One of them sent me down an entire rabbit hole this week. So tell us some about your favorite little apps and services.
2: Yeah. Uh let's see. The the first one that came to mind is uh to do, and that's t e u x d e u x and this is a, uh, a a Tina Roth Eisenberg production and it is a to- do app that is extremely simple, but it is the to do app that aligns with kind of how my brain works and how I want to think about my to-do items and how to cross them off and what I want to see. So the the conceit of the app is super simple. It's basically, let me show you just the week. So you basically can only see five days at a time. And then under each day you have to-do items and you can write them in and then you can check them off. And then anything not checked off just carries over to the next day. So the way I've described it just sounds stupidly simple. And it is like, if you are looking for power or organization, do not use this app. That's not, that's not what it is, but it, it launched kind of around the same time as studio need. I think this was like a 2010, 2011.
1: Yeah. This is not a new app. It's been around a long time. It's
2: not new at all. And um, it just clicked with me and I, it works so well for what I wanted to do that I've not even considered going away from it. And it makes me really happy that an app like this is continuing to uh, to exist. It's $24 a year, I think. So $2 a month, pretty reasonable. And I'm happy to pay that if it means it allows them to keep the lights on. They just refreshed the uh, the visual appearance on in the website version of it. There's an iPhone app as well that I also use all the time, but I usually just have the the website open in a little pinned tab in my browser. And so the fact that they are still updating it leads me to believe they're like doing okay and that like they're sustainable with however many um, subscribers they have. So it just I a I really like using it and it it fits my mental model pretty much perfectly of what everything I want in a to do app and nothing I don't want, but it just makes me really happy. It gives me just good vibes of like, I'm pretty sure this is a very small team and the fact that they've been going and continuing for over a decade, it just, it gives me warm fuzzies to see like small software continue to plug along. Yeah. So this is the one
1: I spent time chasing down this week because I remember when it came out, and i heard her interviewed and it's like such an opinionated app but it's mm-hmm. just gorgeous i mean i don't i mean in my opinion i i think the typography is like perfect and mm-hmm. it really is something that is to behold i would recommend going and looking at the screenshots if nothing else just to see because you don't see apps this opinionated anymore i, mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of a, a a sign of days gone by but it is a very simple app and the thing that was interesting to me is I've really got into these Monk cards the last mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a series of index cards. And I have a big boy task manager. I got a lot of stuff going on. And I kind of think of that as the bank and I've got all my tasks in there. But ultimately, the last mile for me is these cards. And I every day I've got a different index card and I work through it. And they you know, OmniFocus is holding the back end of it, but the actual operation, the actual check, happens on a piece of paper. To do is like a digital version of those Ugma cards, and yeah, in that you know, and its simplicity.
2: Yeah, yeah. A couple of things on that. One is uh, just to plug my own show. We just had uh, Jeff Sheldon on the on the Last Detail uh, <laughs> podcast. Jeff, great. Yeah, yeah really so, nice uh, guy. Yeah. yeah, super nice. But the, he just also released a variant of those cards you're talking about that's a longer and it's a week view. And that uh, card, that system is like very similar to what to do is offering where it's like, I want to show you the week because it is useful to like jump a couple days ahead or kind of have a full understanding of your week, but that's all you're seeing. Like, I'm not going to go further in the future. I'm not showing you a month. Like this is the right increment of time. And so I thought that was pretty cool. That is like a, it's like an analog version of to do what he just introduced. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I'm looking at my weekly UG Monk card right now. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I have them and they're great. Oh, yeah. cool. But
2: yeah, As digital
1: as I am, I do feel like the simplicity of your task system at the end is really good. I mean, there's a lot of people for whom something like to do or the Uggmon cards would not suffice for like running a complex task system. But I feel like an app like this can even have a role in a complex system. If you want to just like at the end say, okay, well, this is what I'm actually doing today, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get like that the fancy apps do this too. But I do like the simplicity of this, and uh, and I can't fault you on your choice because it's just so pretty. I don't know. <laughs> I think
2: there's something nice about looking at pretty apps when you're doing your work. Yeah, for sure. What else you got? Let's see. Oh yeah. So the next one I have here is. Not words, it's K N O T W O R D S, and so this is a game, an iPhone game. Uh, it's from Zach Gage, who incidentally I went to grad school with. He's he's another uh Parsons alum, and uh, I met him there, and he was already. Just doing the raddest iPhone stuff. You know, he was super early to the iPhone uh, app store with these cool games, but also these kind of beautiful art projects. And so I was like, this guy, this guy's on something. <laughs> I'm going to keep my eye on him. And obviously, he's had a very illustrious uh, career and a lot of amazing iPhone games. And he, I mean, maybe it's. Uh, I don't try a ton of iPhone games, so there's probably some bias going on here. But his batting average for for me for games that click with me is extraordinarily high. I mean, Sage Solitaire, I was super into. Uh, Card of Darkness, I was obsessed with. Like he has some amazing games. And so not words is kind of the latest in that uh in that obsession with <laughs> Zach Gage projects. And so uh how to describe this game, it's basic, it's kind of like reverse crosswords, where it feels almost like you're building a crossword instead of solving a crossword. I think that's the easiest way to describe it. And so you're presented with a grid of empty boxes that looks like an empty crossword, but instead of given clues, you're given letters that are assigned to uh, regions that you have to put in place so that it all works together. So the words all fit. So it's kind of like crossword meets Sudoku, maybe is how I would describe it. But Anyhow, I've gotten hooked on doing the daily mini, which is a, a, a small version of the puzzle that takes about a minute to solve. So this has become kind of my morning coffee ritual is to uh, to play this game. So it's super good.
0: You've got another one here that jumped out at me because I also love it. And that is the application Tot.
2: Yeah, so I this fills a real uh, need for me, which is essentially just a scratch pad. And uh, I, I think the app was called Scratch. There was an iPhone app that I really liked for the longest time. I think it was called Scratch. But I've just found that having a text entry scratch pad is super important to me. I use Apple Notes and like it a lot but I do not want it to get cluttered with trash documents, you know, things that I don't are not permanent that are just ephemeral and flying through. So I need some other system for if I just need to jot down some text quickly, or there's something I need to know for a little bit, but then it'll, it'll go away when I've already you know taken care of it. And so I really like TOT. I think the iPhone app is good. I use the Mac toolbar, uh, thing up menu item and i really like that as well so yeah it's another one of those apps that just does all the things i need it to do and none of the things i don't and so i've been really happy with it
1: yeah and we've talked about that one frequently on the show because it it is the simplicity that makes it so good and i see a theme here dan with to do and taught, <laughs> you know uh, and uh you know i dig it i do yeah, nice Dan, we you know, we've talked about a few of your products over the show, but gang, go just go over to Studio Neat and check it out. There's so much great stuff there. And I wasn't kidding. I mean, I I, I have, I think, bought almost everything. Did I think I bought from uh, as a Christmas gift a few years ago something from you to make ice for whiskey glasses? Didn't you guys used to have a product that did that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right? Yeah. I mean, I I've been I am am uh, I'm, I'm on the whale club over there at Studio <laughs> Neat. But the uh but yeah, it's great stuff. So go check it out at Studio Neat. Uh where should people go to see you on the internet, Dan?
2: Uh yeah, I mean, well, I yeah, studioneat.com. please go there. I would prefer if you you'll you'll get more out of following Studio Neat than me. I'm more of a uh, a lurker than a poster. But uh so Studio Neat is kind of at Studio Neat everywhere. We're on I- Instagram is probably the best one. We're also on threads. And we're on Mastodon as well. I I guess technically we're on Twitter too, but that's kind of just been abandoned at this point. Uh, And then so me, I'm at Dan Provost also at all of these places. So I guess Mastodon and Threads are probably, if you want to follow me, I will occasionally link to a music album that's just turned 20 years old. That's pretty much the extent of my, uh, posting is just reminiscing about old albums. Uh, so if that interests you, give me a follow on threads. All right.
1: <laughs> well, we'll do check it out and thank you to our sponsors, text expander, masterclass, Squarespace, and indeed. We are the Mac power users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, you can sign up for the plus version of the Mac power users. We call it more power users. Uh, You get an extended show every week with ad-free. In fact, this week for the more Power User subscribers, Dan, Stephen, and I are going to talk about the death of the 27-inch iMac. I know it's sad, but we want to talk about that. So we'll do that. Otherwise, we'll see you next time, and thanks for listening.